Imagine a world where you knew that you mattered and you belonged. The people cared about you because we were so darn good at listening to one another, no matter how different we are. That is what Sidewalk Talk is doing by putting listeners on sidewalks all over the world so that we can practice the art of connecting. Join me, founder and director Tracy Rubel, as I interview experts on the fine art of human connection and interview some of our volunteers who've been listening on the sidewalk and even some of the folks that we've listened to. And if you want to volunteer, consider joining us at sidewalk-talk.org. So I want you all to be really proud about how much I could keep my mouth shut during this next podcast interview with Dr. Tanya Singer from the Max Planck Institute. And I'll tell you why, because I was like a little puppy dog. I couldn't sit still in my seat. I was wagging my tail. She is really the world's foremost researcher on dyadic listening, which is what we do at Sidewalk Talk. And her research has really proven that what we do at Sidewalk Talk has people turn around and go be more compassionate and, and willing to lean in on the suffering of other people. Different than if we were just to be mindful on our own. Mindfulness doesn't have the same impact on compassionate action. And it got me so excited, so excited. I want you to hear what she has to say. And I want you to remember that this podcast is going live leading up to Giving Tuesday. And if there has been anything that has made you want to really invest in this work growing, whether it's you donate a monthly donation to keep this work and the impact of it going, or you decide to start a chapter, I want you to remember us because this is the prerequisite for wellness for people, communities, politics, and the planet. People, communities, politics, and the planet all depend on healthy, heart-centered connection as its foundational piece. And from there, we can solve lots of problems together. So Without further ado, Dr. Tanya Singer from the Max Planck Institute. So, Dr. Tanya Singer, I stalked you on the internet. Hello. <laughs> I'm a nice stalker. <laughs> I'm a nice stalker. Good. Um, I am so excited to get into the nitty gritty with you on your research. So first of all, because we have all these listeners from around the world, can we help them understand the context of who you are and, and what your studies have been about and where you're located? Yeah. So I'm, uh, I'm, my, my name is called Tanya Singer and I'm a psychologist and social neuroscientist, and I'm working as professor at the Max Planck Society. It's a, it's a kind of a research society for Germany, and I'm located with my social neuroscience lab, it's called, in Berlin, in the capital of Germany. And we'll give a more formal interview later. I'll add a little soundbite to this, but I help people understand a little bit about you personally too. I mean, you come to this work with a long practice, um, awareness practices. Can you say a little bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so in a way, uh, you know, my latest research, which, which we probably will talk about, it is uh, called the Resource Project. And that was a, 
uh, you know, nine months mental training study, which is based on contemplative traditions from the East, like meditation practices, contemplative practices, but also psychological practices from the West. And uh, we have then, you know, like uh, researched how the brain, how the immune system, how the behavior, how the well-being of 300 participants changes over these kind of nine months time of practicing different types of meditations and, and, and psychological practices. And why I was motivated to do this huge, complex, enormous project, which we probably will talk about in a minute, is because I was on one hand psychologist and neuroscientist, like a scientist, but also you know, interested in psychology, applied psychology, doing a lot of trainings in that. And on the other hand, on, in my private life, you know, next to my research, uh, you know, that was a, a phase or a time where mindfulness was not at all fashionable. I mean, you know, <laughs> it was not at all something scientists would do research on. I had uh, pursued a lot of retreats, you know, for different retreats in terms of how to alter consciousness, meditation retreats, and all kinds of retreats. And I was fascinated by, you know, by, by the potential for inner transformation they have and how good they did to me. And so I eventually could bring together these fields, you know, the, the kind of personal experience of practicing uh, you know, inside and working on my personality and working on consciousness. And on the other hand, my scientific, psychological, uh, you know, professional background. Right. So this just makes me want to think of, want to ask this next question. What was your very first retreat like? Do you remember that very first time where you had to sit still and <laughs> close your <laughs> eyes or clear your mind? I mean, do you, what was that like for you the very first time? I mean, really difficult because I have a very busy and fast mind. And actually, it's, it's, it's difficult again and again. You know, it's something, you, you know, it's when you come from a very busy day and then you sit down, your mind is busy. So, uh, you know, it's not like the cliche where people think, you know, meditation means emptying your mind. <laughs> it is just, you know, basically turning inwards and cultivating your mind, whatever is there. So I remember the first retreat, the it was a 10-day retreat um, where we had complete silence. And the silence itself was beautiful and that not, not talking was wonderful. But um, once everything outside gets silence and you sit, your inner mind gets so loud. So it's like a big radio which is turned off, uh, on, I mean, like really loud. Yeah. Because yeah. you realize how much you're thinking every millisecond all the time because everything else gets so quiet around you. And so the first days actually are always a pain because my mind has to settle and to calm down and to, you know, become a bit quieter. But then eventually if it really, if you get into this deep silence and quietness is beautiful and wonderful. It's certainly not how modern living is. No. Right? <laughs> I mean, it sort of perpetuates this kind of busy mind. You know, I, I loved that we got to connect before this podcast and mm -hmm. I, I shared with you that I'm from the San Francisco Bay area mm -hmm. and that there is this cultural thing happening in the Bay area where every company, you know, it seems like every tech device, they're trying to come up with ways to sell mindfulness, to package mindfulness. It's seemingly marketed as the cure for every single ailment that you have. Um, I'm just curious 
what your thoughts have been on the evolution of mindfulness and where might that be beneficial that we're squishing it into so many places and where might we be losing something? Yeah, somehow that that's a you know a topic we have uh, been discussing in this whole you know like the early generation also you know connected to the Mind and Life Institute which had like since the 80s dialogues between the Dalai Lama and you know Eastern contemplative experts and Western scientists. Uh, when we started, you know, mindfulness wasn't a thing. It wasn't a fashion. It wasn't you know there were no apps. So. You know, this movement came out of the old, very old traditions of, of, you know, masters, like, you know, meditation teacher, which had to to have a lifetime of experience before they could call themselves teachers and, you know, um, teach people these old wisdoms, you know, these old, <laughs> old practices of, of wisdom teaching. And, and, and this picture has radically changed, you know, through the I think through so, so making mindfulness and meditation scientifically available, it kind of opened a lot of doors, uh, you know, into Western culture and, uh, you know, clinics first and then also businesses and, you know, health system, healthcare system now, mindfulness entering in education. So what is beautiful is that this really old wisdom, which is so important for, for our humanity, is entering now in the Western world in all streams of society. You know, there's even Mindfulness UK in England, you know, in the government. So, but the, like, let's say the, the, the backdrop is that sometimes it's what we call Mac mindfulness, you know, sometimes basically it, it's a bit like going in the other extreme that these kind of very old wisdoms are getting packaged like an Adidas shoe or like the newest kind of toothbrush or so on. And obviously, you know, these practices are not something you can learn in two days or in three days. It's, it's a whole lifetime practice in a way, you know, to become conscious is not something you do 10 minutes on an app and that's it. Or, you know, just a weekend. It's, it's, it's a lifelong learning in a way. And so I guess the danger is that we are, uh, you know, that it becomes a bit watery. And so the other, you know, the resource project I was talking at the beginning was also an effort to bring mindfulness a little bit back into its ethical and also compassionate context. So I think what mindfulness at the beginning in the West was very much reduced to, which is not at all, you know, the definition of mindfulness used in the East, is attention training, to become more efficient, you know, to concentrate, to stabilize the mind. Um, but if you look at where mindfulness is actually embedded is to alleviate suffering, to reduce suffering from us and from others and, and to cultivate compassion ultimately, you know, it's all about bringing compassion into the world. And so in the resource project, we try to go beyond this kind of more narrow definition of mindfulness, which is often reduced to something like, you know, attention training and to, you know, reintroduce modules where where you really explicitly focus on practices of compassion, of connectivity, of intersubjectivity, of weeness, you know, of connecting to other people in a deep way and creating meaning in connection in a deep way. And then we also, you know, worked more on what is in old Buddhist tradition is a very big topic is a self, you know, who am I? What is the self? What is the interdependence between selves? You know, what yeah. is another? And that has also been lacking in this very early, you know, mindfulness movement is, is very rarely about 
about things like who are you and, and self <laughs> and compassion. And so we, in the resource project, we try to compare the effects which, you know, basic mindfulness practice like attention-based practice have with the effects which, you know, more intersubjective practices of compassion or perspective taking, you know, or like finding, you know, theory of mind, like taking perspective on the mind of other or empathic listening. And, and we compared how these different practices have very different effects actually on your brain, on your behavior. So the outcome of this 20 years research almost is that it's really not, we shouldn't talk about just what, you know, we shouldn't talk about mindfulness or meditation is, is as stupid than talking about this sport, you know, mm. as, a, as an umbrella term. It, you know, depending on the practice you do every day, you will have totally different results in terms of brain plasticity changes, in terms of your stress uh, levels. And, you know, what we notice is that for example, altruism, cooperation, and social stress mostly get reduced only if you engage in these intersubjective practices. If you do basic mindfulness, attention-based, you know, body scan, breathing meditation, it doesn't help so much developing these ethical heart-based qualities. I, I, I'm just so, well, this is why I stopped you on the internet, because this is just fascinating. I love the way you make this distinction. I think this language is really helpful. So what I hear you saying is one is kind of a me focus. If I am focused on training my attention mm -hmm. so I can be more efficient, mm -hmm. that's not necessarily about alleviating the suffering of myself and other people. No, no. And I think it's very necessary to stabilize the mind. It's like a basic, it's, it's very important to become mindful, you know? and get an observer perspective, but it's not enough, let's say, for, for alleviating suffering in the world. And I'm, I mean, we have a lot, I'm interested in this because we have so much suffering in the world, and yet increasingly we're more self-focused. Even, mm -hmm. our, even our meditation practice gets self-focused. Mm -hmm. You know, we're <laughs> spending money on ourselves. We're meditating for ourselves. We go to therapy for ourselves. Like I, I still see things turning inward to improve the self. And you know, I I shared with you that we I started listening on the sidewalk to to sort of question that in a way. Mm -hmm. And here you go, you do this research study that sort of proves what I've experienced, kind of, and just as an experiment on the street, which is my attention to the other, my willingness to have, com my capacity to have com compassion and the new perspective taking that I take by engaging over and over again in a practice of empathic listening has really shifted my focus from me to we. Mm -hmm. Now, I wanna hear more though because there are some very specific ingredients because I know I can't compare the kind of scrappy way that we do it on the sidewalk compared to the, the, the really thoughtful way that you set up this experiment. So would you be willing to share kind of how you set up this experiment, what types of interventions you, you did on these 300 folks, how you prepared them for it? Mm -hmm. Share with me a little bit. So I think there is, you know, like I was fascinated to hear from the sidewalks talk because there is a, a similarity in, in a certain practice we implemented in the resource project, which is very, very close to what you do 
it's it's of course a little bit because it's not on the street you know it's not so spontaneous it was a scientific study and and you know we had modules with very clear scripts and you know like science has to be so the what we call contemplative diets is in a way from the setting a little bit similar to the sidewalks because you have a listener and you have a speaker and we did research on the effects of these intersubjective meditations we call them contemplative diets because we see them like a meditation but you don't do it alone you don't have to imagine the other you know some of the compassion practices in buddhism require that you imagine another and sometimes it's difficult because you have to hold the picture of some imaginary other in in your mind and then do you know loving kindness training and uh you know and so i thought why not just having a real person you know on the other side and you practice on certain questions so the difference to the sidewalk talks i think in the contemplative diets is that one person would ask the other a question so let's say in the affect diet it's you know it's called affect diet because it's part of the affective socio-affective training module we have three different modules and they have three different names they have like presence affect compassion and and you were studying different things with each module, correct? Exactly, yeah. In the, in the presence module, we basically studied the effect of basic attention-based mindfulness practices you do alone. In the affect module, we practice basically all the practice you could call social-emotional, you know, like opening the heart, you know, practices of loving-kindness, empathic listening, gratitude, accepting difficult emotion, social caring motivation, you know. So that is because we know in the brain it's a certain circuitry which is subserving these you know heart-based qualities of you know emotional and motivational feelings and the third module was called perspective taking because it's very cognitive in nature and there you train the to to basically cultivate your inner observer the the bird's eye view on your mind and on your inner parts and so you also learn how to take perspective on the minds of others. You know, what is the other believing? What are the belief system of this other person? You know, and to really go out of your own perspective and belief system and creep into the perspective of another, you know, to do these perspective shifts. And also kind of take a bird's eye perspective. This is why we call it perspective module on your inner parts, you know, which different inner personality part are you composed of? You know, the inner judge. The, the kind of playful child, the loving mother, you know, all these different roles we have. So anyhow, depending on the module they were in, they were practicing different meditations or different uh, mental practices. And in the presence module, which is a classical, you know, like me-focused, attention-based mindfulness module, there were no uh, intersubjective diets, you know, these kind of partner exercises. Mm -hmm. I that there was nothing of that. And we could compare this effect with modules where we had these everyday 10 minutes where one is listening empathically to the other and then they turn role. So that's a bit different with the sidewalk talks. You have a clear listener and you have someone who talks in the contemplative diet. You have five minutes, I'm the listener, and you, you answer a certain question. You meditate basically on a certain question like, you know, give me a situation of the last 24 hours, you were kind of stressed and how did it feel in your body? Or, you know, give me a situation where you felt gratitude and how did that gratitude felt in your body? Question like that, you know? Mm -hmm. And you meditate and explore this kind of loudly and I just listen, like in the sidewalk talks. 
But then we switch role. So the listener becomes the talker and the, 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 the talker becomes the listener. So in a way you have switch of the roles. Uh, but it's, of course, a totally different situation because these participants, they are like 80 in one cohort. They, they, I mean, there, there is a very safe space. It's not on the street. You know, they have inscribed themselves to participate in a nine-month study. They were on retreats, three-day three silent retreats at the beginning of each module. Um, you know, they are, they are paired. Every week they get a new partner paired by us. And so, of course, the environment is much more safe. So, so they start sharing very deep, um, vulnerable stories of their lives to each other because they know that the content will not go out. You know, it's a bit like in therapy, but there is no therapist and there is no client. They are just democratically equal two people, you know, sharing out of vulnerability and listening empathically to each other. And these diets were incredibly effective. Uh, they were very, you know, like, for example, reducing social stress, like cortisol in the body on this, on, after a social stressor, not like, you know, not like daily stressor, but social stressor. And social stressor, usually the cortisol response in a social stress test is usually because you feel judged by others. You feel mm. not adequate. You feel not good enough. You feel... You, you know, you should have worked more, you should have been better, you know, all these kind of very high performance, achievement motivated fears that you are not good enough or you're judged by another. And what we observed is that in the modules where you do 10 minutes partner intersubjective we diets, uh, like partner exercise, you get 51% reduction of social stress. Wow. However, if you do just you know, like attention-based mindfulness without these kind of self-compassion and compassion components, these kind of social components, uh, you don't get any reduction in, in cortisol stress response after three months. Um, so really, you know, this really speaking, if you want to reduce stress, you have to, you have to practice the intersubjective nature of, you know, experiencing that someone listens to you and does not judge you. And is not judging you, and you will listen, and you will also not judge because you don't want to be judged either. So I don't want to skip by this too quickly because mm -hmm. this is this is pretty profound. <laughs> this is pretty profound, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, what you're saying is that there are some massive benefits from being with another human. Mm -hmm. while you're engaging in this contemplative practice that you cannot get when you do this all by yourself. Yes. I mean, what I cannot say is like what we, not, what we did not compare because we couldn't do 500 studies is if you just imagine another person and you would mm -hmm. do this empathic compassion exercise, like in loving kindness meditation, you know, where you basically imagine a social situation, you might have the same reduction. We don't know. We can only say in the modules where you don't have diets, these intersubjective, you know, relational practices, but only attention-based mindfulness, you don't find social stress reduction after three months. So you find it on questionnaires, but not on the hormonal level. And it makes sense because, you know, if you just try to, come back to your breathing, you, you learn to stabilize and calm your mind, but you don't, learn, you don't learn that other people might not judge you and that you shouldn't be afraid anymore, that you don't learn anything about the other. Mm -hmm. Well, and so I know that I'm asking you to be prescriptive, but from a 
just be human with me for a second here. What do you think the impact potentially is if we reduce our social stress and are worried less about being judged or if frankly we judge less other people? <laughs> I mean, I think it, it's huge. I think it's, you know, we have, as you know, as a therapist, we have all these increase in stress-related diseases already, you know, in, in school. And I think we are chronically stressed about not being good enough because our, all our big systems are based on achievement motivation and comparing ourselves with the hyper-individualism and, you know, competitive power motivation are always about being better than others, you know. So this kind of fear of not being good enough and not being always excelling in the best is kind of ingrained in our culture and our educational system and our scientific system, all the big systems. So if we could lower that motivation and, you know, increase care motivation, affiliative relationship motivation, and really learn not to judge, but really to accept the other as it is, as he is or she is, and also accept ourselves in the first place, I think we would cure many, many of our cultural, you know, increasing diseases, including also depression, yeah. uh, depressive episodes, which are also increasing in, in very young adulthood already. Yeah. yeah. And loneliness, you know, we have a loneliness epidemics as well, yep. uh, which is crazy because, you know, we have more and more apps and more and more social media and still, you know, in the young people, subjective loneliness increases, not the 80 plus. And, um, and so I think also your, you know, your work with the sidewalk talks is crucial to, to reconnect people on a deeper level of listening and connecting. And I think the contemplative diet we have implemented in these meditative contemplative training programs is same. They are absolutely crucial, I think, to reconnect to ourselves and other people in a, in a deep and not narcissistic way. In a deep and not narcissistic way. Yeah, you know, if I had a, if I could daydream, I would like, oh, if Dr. Singer could just study sidewalk talk, because there are some unique things about number mm -hmm. one, not switching roles in the dyad, because mm -hmm. what sometimes happens is in the role reversal, the talker now might edit themselves and not go as deep because the other person didn't. Yes. But for me, I also wanted to acknowledge that I have a particular role in a, multi, a much more multicultural city um, than the one I'm currently living in, where I'm white and I'm upper middle class, and I wanted to privilege a voice that maybe doesn't get privileged in our society by not taking up space and talking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that is... That is a real, you know, like also you, you, you had a, a kind of a social activist role almost, you know, by, yes. and, and of course, you know, in the contemplative diets is more, was we implemented in the resource project is also really a, like, let's say a designed way to also train social skills. Like, for example, with one diet, we call them perspective diet. We train theory of mind, you know, the skill to take mm -hmm. perspectives. So we, you know, we, but perhaps one thing, which I might add, what we had asked the people because it was new, these kind of diets, we didn't know whether they would do it, you know, because at the beginning they said, what? We have to not only meditate ourselves, you know, 20 minutes every day, but connect with someone we don't know and tell him such personal stuff. And that over 90, you know, people were like not imagining they could do it. And we didn't know whether it would work. And so... We said, look, give us a chance, two weeks, you know, like two squashing, 
you know, 10 minutes of little space in every day where you really take a moment to connect with others in yourself. So give us the chance. And then we observed first what was great. The compliance was huge. So, uh, you know, we, we had almost nobody who, no, we had nobody actually from the 300 people who said they don't want to do the diet. And the compliance to the diets was as high than to the meditation alone, even though it is much more difficult, of course, to pair up with someone because, you know, someone might forget the rendezvous, someone might forget to, to call or, the, you know, is in, in holiday, the reception is bad. But, you know, despite all these difficulties you can have technically with diets, they, we, they did them as much as the meditation they could do alone at home. And they loved them, really. We, we asked them, you know, and then we also asked them, how close do you feel to your partner before the diet mm -hmm. and after the diet? And they had to, you know, they had to just bring wings, two wings. Either, you know, like if you are symbiotic, you have two wings overlapping. If, if you feel very, very distant to the other, you have the wings not overlapping at all. So you, you can just measure the distance of the wings. People would slide a, a scale, you know, before, mm -hmm. very quick. And we did that, you know, over 364 uh, days a year for each diet everyone did every day. Mm. We, we published these data and what we could show is an interesting thing. First, after doing every diet, people always felt closer to the other. Mm -hmm. But now what we were more interested, does this feeling of connectedness and closeness does it also generalize to people who have not done the diet yet? You know, does right. it generalize to a feeling of connectedness to, to world? You know, so we, we looked at how close do they feel in the second week when they are paired with a new person they have not yet known, they have not done a diet yet. And we asked, we, we see how close do they feel in the third week, in the fourth, in the fifth week, whenever they paired with people, they have actually not yet communicated. But, mm -hmm. And every week they feel closer and closer and closer to people. It's a linear function. It goes up and up. So, so over the 13 weeks of a module and another 13 week of the second module, the 300 people always feel closer and closer every week, even though they don't know the person yet. So meaning you really you, you develop a sense of, con of reconnecting to society, to people, um, even if you have not had this kind of deep interaction yet. So you just become a more connective person. Exactly. Somehow, yes. I mean, we didn't, you know, we didn't, uh, we didn't test it whether, you know, we public can now have less prejudice to, you know, or like whether you feel closer to Chinese, even though you have practice only with Americans. So we didn't, you know, we, it was only the 80 people of a cohort always, you know, yep. but we didn't necessarily knew these people, you know? Yeah. But I think the implications are potentially huge, and, and I can imagine our anecdotal evidence right now at Sidewalk Talk for folks that listen four more times mm -hmm. in a diverse area, their bias does go down. They feel more connected to people mm -hmm. that are different than they are because mm -hmm. they've heard the story of another um, from a real intentional contemplative space, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and without the helperness, I think that so often there's this helperness that gets engaged with people who are doing humanitarian work that doesn't necessarily, it's not quite the same, right? Yes. It's not quite the same. Oh my gosh. I, it's so funny as I'm sitting here 
talking to you. I'm having the same excitement that I had the first time I read the research and the first time we talked on the phone. My body's kind of shaking. I get all excited. I feel like a little dog with my tail wagging right now. I'm like, <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. I, when I heard about your what you're doing, I thought, wow, she's really doing very similar thing. It's a very similar intuition, even though I, I you come more. I come from science, from the contemplative background, and you come more from the social activist and therapy therapeutic practical work uh, you know perspective but I think the goal is the same is to reconnect people really deeply with them through active empathic listening no yeah you know it's been interesting too I have to share I got an email from one of our new Heidelberg volunteers mm -hmm. and he said gosh I've been out on the street listening with you two times and he's German and and I have experienced German culture is very different than mm -hmm. California cultures that's not a surprise uh, in fact, the Heidelberg listeners tease me all the time because they say, oh, that's so Californian what you just said, you know, but he did say, he said, gosh, I walk around smiling more. <laughs> I just walk around German streets as a German and I smile at people more. Yeah, I, I really think that, um, you know, that it's universal. Everyone wants to be deeply listened to and to be seen and to be heard irrespective of race and nationality. I think the way we communicate emotions is highly cultural, you know. Sure. You know, the California smile is not really <laughs> German. <laughs> but we like smiles. We like it. We do have emotional contagion. We like to feel smiled at. But yes, Californians do that cheeky, oh, oh syrupy kind of bullshit smile sometimes. But... <laughs> Every culture has, I think, its own thing, but I think in the deep, you know, in the deep core of us, everyone has the need to be seen, to be listened, and to be recognized deeply. And so I think this practice is actually really universal. Yeah. I'm sure of it. I think it would work exactly like in China and Japan, just that perhaps the, the interface would look different or the beginning or, you know, like the, the norms, how you start a conversation perhaps or something like that. Yeah, I'm going to have um, Dr. Dixon Chibanda from Amfari on in a bit, and he has grandmothers sitting out in Africa listening to community members as a mental health intervention. Oh, but wow. It's the same, same thing because they don't have enough mental health practitioners mm -hmm. to serve the, the needs of the population, but it's the same. It's, it's just incredible. They're finding the same, you know, in a completely different continent, same impact that people want to feel seen and that feeling deeply seen has a huge implication for somebody's well-being so and, and you know one question i might also ask you because I, I think you probably also you know turn around your head about that is there a difference if you look eye to eye in a in a you know someone who is really sitting and present doing a diet or doing a sidewalk talk or it, or can an app you know where people are connected to an app and doing that is it the same or is there something about the, the real physical presence of a person and the real physical eye-to-eye -eye contact, which is adding some very deep intimacy and specialty to this, to this, you know, to this encounter? Well, I, I know that you and I have talked a little bit about apps offline. I, I think I'm going to say something about this because I was considering this. You know, I'm in, the, I'm in Germany now and I am still yeah. seeing psychotherapy clients over video, right? Yeah. Um, what I've noticed is that video sessions have been just as impactful, but I also notice that it's 
there's a difference based on what machine I'm sitting in front of because I don't expect my PC or my laptop to give me the dopamine hits that I expect my cell phone to give me. Yeah. And I noticed there, the other day I had to take a call because I was running late using video on my cell phone. And I noticed that my body felt different sitting in front of my cell phone mm-hmm. because the screen was smaller. I couldn't yeah. see their faces clearly. Yeah. Um, I also think I've been conditioned to expect something different from mm-hmm. my cell phone, which is constant stimulation, comparing Mm-hmm. likes, you know, I'm expecting that from that device. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's potential over video. And I think your, some of your dyads were done over video, right? I mean, we, we had um, not video done on just um, calls. And mm. so the daily practice of diets, we just did uh, like we do now, like just audio. And, but every week they were coming together for two hour session and they were sitting eye to eye. So every mm. week they did basically two hours of, of real meditation with teachers in a real room with real mm-hmm. people, with a real community. And I don't know if we would just have done it only via app and only via, you know, audio, whether it would have been the same. I don't know. We didn't compare it scientifically, so we don't know. Um, well, the thing I like about your study is, is the one intervention where you have the two people sit in silence, yes. making contact with each other. And I think that becomes very difficult to do over technology, right? <laughs> Where they can person to person, I see who, I think words get in the way. I mean, this is all of Jacques Lacan's stuff that language is a wound, right? Because it separates us. And so. I mean, there's surely something extremely intimate and also in terms of, you know, brain science, we know that eyes, eyes of people are processed through different channels than, for mm-hmm. example, voice. You know, it's different. Mm-hmm. Evolutionary eyes have been extremely important, and it's a very intimate, you know, like just looking into the mm-hmm. eyes. My experience, just without data, you know, we didn't collect the tears in our research project, but my experience was that whenever we introduced the diet and the, you know, and the 80 people of a cohort, uh, you know, in the retreat center at the beginning, when they first listened, you know, without interrupting, without nodding, without intruding into the space of the other, just listening. Many people had tears. Yeah. <laughs> and we asked them afterward, why did you have tears? You know, because we wanted to make sure that's okay. And it was tears of amazement and joy. And so many said, I don't know when I have the last time really listened without already preparing my response in my head while listening because I, I knew it's my turn, you know, or I will interrupt or... yeah. When did I really listen and really just, you know, mindfully were there for the space of the other? And, and it brought a lot of tears in many, many participants. It was deeply moving just to look into these eyes without any intention of communicating in that sense, but mm. really just holding the mindful space for the other to explore herself or himself. And that really moved people extremely deeply. And I did the same. You know, the, the, the inspiration I had to, to further develop it into this kind of daily practice was a Satori retreat. I did, uh, you know, in Australia, mm. a Satori retreat where you have these intersubjective practice. You're sitting in front of the other. It's kind mm. of like a Zen. It's a mix of, yeah, of psychology and Zen, Zen retreat. And from morning to evening, you 
you're asking always one question, who are you? You know, mm. I would ask you, tell me who you are. And then for five minutes, you would just pure out everything you think you are. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you do that from morning to evening for six or seven or eight days. And then eventually you pop into the answer. You know, that's why it's called Satori. You have this revelation. It's not an intellectual understanding of who you are. It's a, it's a dropping into it, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and for me, it was the first time I did this kind of retreats, not alone, you know, closing my eyes, but with someone with the eyes on opposite side of me, looking at me and just listening, you know, being like mm-hmm. a witnesser of me exploring this deep question. And I was so incredibly moved. Yeah. <laughs> I'm moved just hearing about it. It sounds yeah. so touching. You know, it reminds me of one of our inspirations for Sidewalk Talk, which was mm-hmm. Maria Abramovich's piece at the Met, yeah. The Artist is Present. Yeah. And I think you remind me of an important element because what you're describing is you said, you know, the listener doesn't invade the space Mm-hmm. of the person commun- communicating. And I think that's a really beautiful, I can almost feel in my body as you describe it, mm-hmm. what it would be like to not even have somebody reflect back what you've said or mm-hmm. not, but to simply hold a kind of presence mm-hmm. that says, I see you. Yes. And nothing more. And, and, and that is really the beauty of this type of empathic listening. Because You know, we really have to teach. This is why I always say, I cannot just give you the question of the diet and then you do it. There are so many subtle things to teach first to really do it in the in this kind of contemplative spirit. And one thing is, for example, that you shouldn't make mimic, you know, you, because there are verbal and nonverbal ways of how to interrupt the other. <laughs> and if you nod too much, you know, our social brain is so conditioned. Someone talks, you nod, you, you know, you, you do affirma- affirmation and in this diet, we really teach the people don't do anything, you know, really just hold, you know, lovingly, but presently the space, but you don't nod, you don't make mm-hmm. some kind of nonverbal gestures in your face. And people don't notice first that they do all the time these kind of, right. you know, social cue gestures. And then, you know, at the beginning, we really have to remind them and to say, you know, just be aware. It's, People will not find it non-polite. We are doing a, a meditation here. We're doing a contemplative practice and it's not a social chit-chat. So, so you don't have to worry about social norms here. It's really... Well, and to quite the opposite, it sounds like when you removed that layer of social norm, I mean, yeah. it sounds like it went deeper. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's so relieving because it's really not anymore about, about the social politeness and what do you expect and does he like me and does he judge me or does he not like me and does, well, and will will I be interrupted so there is really you know this space which is opening up this huge space um it's only your time to explore a deep question and the other will 100% be with you and listen and be present and mm-hmm. the the being present of the other deepens your experience it's not just someone is silent and he could be not there even though he's not doing anything, he's not giving any advice, he's not talking, um, the presence of the other is deepening your practice. And that's the phenomenal thing. Yeah, that both people gain, even the person that's holding the space. Exactly, even the listener, yeah. Yeah. Well, I know that I've taken up so much of your time. I could just, I could just listen to you for days. I mean, you know, <laughs> talking about this, it's just, yeah, I'm, I'm still wag- wagging my tail here like a little dog. <laughs> So 
this podcast will get personally emailed to all 7,000 of our volunteers. So mm -hmm. here's an opportunity for you. If you had a wish or a piece of advice to speak directly to these 7,000 people, what would you want to say to them? It's 7,000 people of listeners or listeners? Listeners. Sidewalk, like, sidewalk talk listeners around the world. I mean, I would just say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for doing it. That's so sweet. Because <laughs> you know the impact. You're one of the yeah, few people that really gets the impact. So, so important. And I think um, I really feel that in our Western society, the subjective loneliness is, the, is, is like a worst virus we have, but it is so invisible that we don't realize that it's eating us up. Mm. And I think everything which can counteract that and can we connect people in a real physical space together in a deep way, you know, not like Facebook, I like it, that's kind of narcissistic dopamine way, you know, yeah. great you know, reward, 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 but really like, you know, basically share vulnerability together without the fear of being judged or it's just so healing. I think it's really healing work. And I hope another thing is I hope it doesn't become an app industry. It stays. I hope that it stays in this kind of local community, real life spirit. Well, you've certainly been an inspiration for that for me. <laughs> And I want to say thank you to you because I, I, I recognize something from our very first email contact that you embody this practice, that you're not just researching it because of the first thing that you said to me in your very first email back to me, you said, <laughs> don't worry, it's not going to scare you. <laughs> you said, ah, I really want to talk to you, mm -hmm. but I'm also really concerned. You said that you were feeling lonely on your on your video and i have plenty of people i could introduce you to and i just was i i was in the car with my husband and i said i think i'm gonna cry this was the <laughs> sweetest response i could have gotten from somebody of dr singer's stature to sort of recognize and pay attention to that so i i not only appreciate your research but i appreciate your lived experience that you actually practice this stuff in your own life and you stand by it in a much deeper way than just an intellectual way. So thank you for that. <laughs> and you know, we do, I mean, you know, I have also done many not walking my talks and mistakes and you know, we are learning individuals. <laughs> yeah. Well, we could talk about that until we exactly. <laughs> I can do, don't worry. I'm not putting you on a pedestal. I'm not <laughs> expecting perfection, but you know, yeah, I just want to name that because I, reach out to a lot of people to talk on this podcast and you're the first person that said something like that. So it's really sweet. Yeah. But uh, the, the invitation is still valid. You know, I really honor that. And it's beautiful that you bring that to Germany. It's, it's wonderful. And perhaps, you know, at some point we can think, I mean, field research is always much more difficult to do, but we can think about ways of how we could, for example, see, you know, how we could track, for example, how, you know, what does it do to the listener in terms of just being an empathic listener mm -hmm. before and after? And what does it do to your own capacity, you know, of self-compassion and empathy and compassion over time, just being an active listener? Well, you'll be happy you know? to know we've already started doing that with Dr. Guy Itchikov at, at oh. the University of Tel Aviv. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll put the two of you in touch because I'm sure he'd yeah. be happy to share all the data. 
Okay. Well, thank you so much. And um, I'm, I'm going to stalk you again, probably in the spring or summer to come listen on the sidewalk in Berlin sometime. Yes, always welcome. And then uh, do you send me the podcast so then we can... Absolutely. Absolutely. Great. Okay. And thank you all who are doing this work. It's an absolute beautiful work. All right. Thank you. And thank you for you, for your devotion and your being. Thanks, Dr. Singer. Bye. Bye. Thank you for being here and listening to this episode of the Sidewalk Talk podcast. If you like what you heard, tell your friends, tell your family, like and comment on the podcast publisher that you're listening from and subscribe. This will help us get the word out about changing our culture to one of connection.